We are in Galatians chapter uh, 1, 1, 18 to 2, 10. Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 10. So Jonathan helpfully prayed for our coming election, which we're supposed to pray for all of those in high positions and authority that God's people might have peace on the earth. And yet we know often that because of politics, we don't have peace. We don't have peace when lawlessness reigns and we often struggle with peace in ourselves because of just how provoking all of the lunacy and immorality is around us. And yet... In the midst of all of that, what is our rock, our refuge? It is that God is our God. And yet, how can you know that God is your God? That's the great concern of Scripture. That's the great concern of our souls, isn't it? How can we truly say He is mine And I am his. Because to know God, to possess him, is to possess everything. I mean, in one sense, if you have God, who gives a rip who wins the election? It matters so little. I mean, it matters. It really does matter. Politics has a great influence and impact on our lives. Uh, We don't want to be, like, detached from the reality because love of neighbor demands that we care about politics. But for those of us who have God, we have everything. But how do you know if you have God? Well, we cannot have God without a true knowledge of the gospel. Can we? And what Paul is doing in this letter is fighting with all that he has for the truth of the gospel, which alone brings us to God. This isn't mere, like, detached learning. The word doctrine isn't just a concern for the mind, but a concern that the truth of God is lived That the truth of God takes up residence in our bones and shapes how we think and act and feel about the world. And particularly this doctrine of the gospel of justification by faith. Paul defends this truth and makes it very personal, particularly in these first two chapters, so that you and I can know what it means to be God's. And so that you and I can know what it means for God to be ours. And have confidence and assurance in that truth. And so, listen, please. Give me your ear. Give me your heart. Bring to him all of your fears and carries and worries. Because of what he has done for you in Christ. He cares. And this doctrine is the one that convinces you that he does care. 
And so it would be good for you to pay attention to it. All right, so I'm going to read Galatians 1, 18 to 2, 10, give you some background again to it, and then apply it in three ways. Then, so then continues on what's going before. He is giving you the background to his life in order to prove to us that the gospel comes from God. So then, after three years, that is after three years from his conversion, he went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. I, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, that is likely after 14 years of his visit to Jerusalem, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those, and from those who seemed influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, with our whole heart, with undivided hearts, we cry to you, please answer us for we will keep your statutes. I call to you, we call to you, save us, that we may observe your testimonies. We rise early and cry for help. We hope in your words. Hear our voice, O God, according to your steadfast love. There are many in this world who seek to do evil to us with evil purposes. They are far from your law. But God, teach us, remind us, assure us that you are near and that all of your commandments are true. We long to know them, your testimonies, because you have founded them from forever. Amen. Again, Galatians, the letter was written in three parts. Part one are the first two chapters. They deal with Paul's biography. And they don't just give you a biographical account so that you can know more about Paul. They, Paul provides his history in order to prove a point 
That being, the gospel didn't come to him from men, but directly from God. So all these details you heard are Paul trying to reassure us that the gospel of freely being accepted by God, only by faith, didn't originate with the apostles in Jerusalem. They came from Christ directly. The second part then in chapters 3 and 4 is explaining what that justification by faith alone is. I can't wait to get there with you. And then the last two chapters, part 3, chapters 5 and 6 are, if that gospel is true and it is, how then should we live? It's ethics. It's living the gospel. But we're in the first part in this biographical account of Paul, and there's nowhere in the Bible that we get greater detail, and it's really sweet. It's very personal. Paul is defending the truth of the gospel, but doing it in a very personal way. He could do it other ways. He could just simply show from Scripture the truth of the gospel. But he makes it very personal. And that's because we'll see throughout this text that one of the great gifts of faith in Christ is people, fellowship, companions, a family, love. And so it's very personal. But again, the biography is given in order to answer the opponents who were teaching that if you were going to go to heaven, you had to be circumcised. If you were going to make it through the pearly gates, you had to have the foreskin cut off. Yeah, you needed faith in Christ too, but you needed to be circumcised. And they were saying that Paul was preaching opposite than that, that circumcision didn't matter. Because Paul was taught that by Peter and John. But their gospel, the gospel of circumcision, came right from the Bible. Paul's came from man, theirs came from God. So who should you listen to? And Paul's saying, that's not true. My gospel, this gospel, the same gospel that the apostles, all the apostles preach and all the churches and all the areas agree with, didn't come from man came directly from Christ. And so Paul gives his biographical account to show that. The actual historical reality is he didn't learn it from Peter or Paul or, I mean, or John or any of them. He got it directly from Christ. That's what this is here for. So where did the gospel come from? It came from Christ. That's the concern. And so all of these details we get are proving that point given in verse 12 of chapter 1. I did not receive it, that is the gospel, from any man. I wasn't taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 9. Go back there and read it. It's a glorious account. So then Paul, what he does going forward biographically, he gives you the details of how you can know that that's true. Well, first, when he became a Christian, he didn't immediately consult with any of them. He went immediately in verse 17 to Arabia for three years, probably preaching the gospel and probably as kind of a spiritual retreat, communing with Christ that he had just been introduced to. So he wasn't with Peter, he wasn't with John, he wasn't with Andrew, he wasn't with any of them. And then after three years, in verse 18, 
he did finally go up to Jerusalem to meet Peter. Spent a couple of weeks with him. They were both apostles. Peter was mainly preaching the gospel among the Jews. Paul was mainly, at this point, preaching the gospel among the circumcised. And Paul wanted to get to know Peter. He met James briefly. Now, that note, James, the brother of the Lord in verse 19, likely there's three Jameses in this group. And this James is likely, this James is likely the actual son of um, Mary and Joseph. So Jesus is the actual brother who at first didn't believe the gospel and after Jesus' death and resurrection did come to believe the gospel and he became kind of the leading pastor in the church in Jerusalem. But Paul's saying, I, it was three years before I went there and then when I went there, I didn't sit there learning what the gospel was. I just wanted to meet Peter. And other than Peter, I didn't meet anybody except for James and that quickly and then I left. Because right? I didn't get the gospel from them. I already had it. I've already been preaching it. Then he left for 14 years. What did he do during that 14 years? Well, if you remember back to the book of Acts, he was traveling around the Roman Empire preaching the gospel and establishing churches. For 14 years. And then he went up to Jerusalem again. Now this visit that's mentioned to Jerusalem in chapter 2 verse 1, it's not real clear which one that is. In Acts we see at least three visits of Peter to Jerusalem. Likely there was four. And it isn't clear if this is the visit to Jerusalem mentioned in Acts 15, when these false teachers who were teaching the needs of circumcision, if you remember, came to Antioch. And the church in Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go back to Jerusalem and to have the matter settled. A lot think that's it. This could be one just before that in Acts 11. It doesn't matter. Paul obviously didn't give us the detail because it's not ultimately material. But there he is after 14 years going back to Jerusalem. And it says he took two people, Barnabas and Titus. And he went there and met with James and Peter and John. And it says in verse 2 that he set before them the gospel that he was proclaiming among the Gentiles in order to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. What does that mean? The temptation is to think that Paul, after 15, 18 years of preaching the gospel, suddenly became concerned that the gospel he's preaching was wrong. But that's not what he means there. He means that there is this controversy, this first initial controversy in the church, and he wanted to go up to Jerusalem before the other leading apostles eye to eye and make sure that they were on board with him and that they weren't affected by these opponents because then the ministry that he had done would have gotten way more difficult, maybe even in vain, if there was that kind of split in the church. So he's not going there saying to Peter, hey, I want to describe the gospel by preaching, and I want to make sure that I got this right. That isn't it. Instead, he's going up to Jerusalem, sitting down privately with these three, saying, hey, you aren't preaching circumcision, are you? We're all on the same page that Jesus, it's only by faith, right? That's what's going on. And 
Titus is the illustration for it. Why? Well, Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. He wasn't a Jew and he wasn't circumcised. And while they were in Jerusalem, you know what didn't happen to him? He wasn't circumcised. And so Paul is again, here's the biography, here's the history. It's justification only by faith, and that came directly from Jesus. This wasn't the invention of men. And then even more so, nothing was added to him. Chosen by act, these three pillars, these three people chosen by the Lord as his apostles to the Jews, James, Peter, and John, Cephas, Cephas is Peter, just gave them the right hand of fellowship. They were all on the same page. And oh, by the way, back in chapter 1, verse 24, all of the churches and all of the Gentile lands were doing nothing but glorifying God for Paul and the gospel that he preached. In other words, in Paul's biography, all of the eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus and all of the churches were all in agreement with the gospel of free acceptance with God only by faith. Those morons were the liars. That's the point of all this. Right? Justification by faith. What is justification by faith? This is, this is the heart of this. This is what Paul is fighting for. What is it? Well, look at verse 3 of chapter 2 again. Or actually, 3, 4, and 5. So you have Titus, a pagan Greek who had come to faith in Christ without any of his own works. And then you have in verses 4 and 5 these others that Paul calls false brothers. They also claim the name of Jesus. But they also claim that that's not enough. You need the works of circumcision and dietary laws and so on. One of those two is true. Both can't be true. These guys are false. They're liars. Their error is so egregious that they're not actually Christian. They're spies. What's a spy? What's the death penalty for, or, 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 ah, I just gave you the answer. Not that you would have known it, right? He couldn't have called them anything worse. Is there anything worse than a spy? Than somebody who claims to be a citizen of your country, but is actually working for the enemy to undermine you. What's worse? Who is the guy in the Revolutionary War? One at a time, please. Benedict, Arnold, right? That's like a, that's a slur. That's a curse word in our culture, right? He calls them Benedict Arnold. They're spies. They're worthy of the death penalty. They're false brothers. So what is justification? Well, it's free acceptance with God based on faith in Christ and nothing else. That's it. And that's what Paul's defending here. So what I want to do is take this text, you know, we've given the biography, we understand why Paul's doing it, but I, there are three things that were particularly enjoyable for me and helpful to my soul, convicting, that I just want to bring to you. First is this mention of God's grace. Look at again, 124. They glorify God for me and combine that with 2.9. 
when they perceived the grace that was given to me. What I want you to consider and hopefully take with you that may lead you to more humility and a greater inclination in your soul to bring God glory is that whatever Paul and whatever these apostles do, whatever these redeemed fallen people do, they've done only because of God's grace. It's all of God's grace from beginning to end. Paul's efforts in traveling the world for 15 plus years, often suffering greatly in order to preach this gospel of forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God in heaven was only because of God's grace. Paul Paul deserved no glory. And Paul's life took on great meaning because of this grace. Paul's life, which continues to go forward. We're here because Paul preached the gospel among the Romans who had by this time conquered what we know as Northwest Europe and the UK. And the gospel, because Paul preached it there, went there. And from there to us. All of that is due to one thing. God's grace. Paul notes that the Spirit, in verse 8, who worked through Peter, also worked through him. And so everything in Paul's life, everything in his biography, everything in the lives of these apostles was due to God's grace. Again, why are the churches glorifying God because of him? Because he had once tried to destroy the church and now he's building it. How could that ever happen? How could a destroyer become a builder? How could one who hated it so much now give his life to build it up? God's grace. Paul in 2.7 has been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel wasn't his. It was given to him to preach it as it is. That's all God's grace. One of the things we also know about Paul is he was like seriously elite genius level. The guy was significantly like brainiac. And super hardworking. And great endurance. What is that attributed to? God's grace. And so as we look at Paul's biography, let's learn from his example. That what Paul is most fighting for in these words is that God get all the glory because it's all his grace. That's what makes Paul the happiest. He's not working hard so everybody can see how good of a mother he is, how perfect of a mother he is, in order for all the other mothers to say, oh, you're such a good mother. He wants God to get all the glory. He's not boasting of how talented of a worker he is, how good of a welder or whatever he's doing to get backslaps among the guys. He wants God to get all the glory. 
In other words, what's in Paul's heart is the grace of God. And because he sees it all of grace, he wants God to get all the glory. His salvation is all due to God's grace. All of his gifts and talents are due to God's grace. All of his fruitfulness and success in preaching the gospel is all due to God's grace. And so we give God all the glory. So how about you? Do you love to see God glorified or yourself? Who are you about in this world? What is your biography for, your life history for, but to glorify God? So I love it when athletes give God glory. I don't know if they're actually Christian, but who cares? Give God the glory. So that's first. God gets all the glory. The first glory we see is God's because it's all grace. The second glory we see is Paul fighting for the truth of the gospel. Again, look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I've already explained lately. Paul, by this time, has spent 15 plus years on the front lines, suffering greatly for this gospel. He's no Johnny come lately. He's no new kid on the block. He goes to Jerusalem because God told him to in verse 2. A revelation. Not to make sure that Peter thought his gospel was right, but to make sure that they were all on the same page so there wouldn't be a split in the church, so the gospel would be preserved for the church. And so he's got this mix of submission. He's going there to submit to them, and yet he's strong. I mean, you get the sense that even if Peter and James and John had said, Paul, your gospel's off, Paul would have said, no. <laughs> Too bad. If I got to go it alone, I'll go it alone. Because the truth is the truth. But what I want you to take note of, what I want you to learn here, is Paul is fighting for the truth. That is, the content of the truth is just as important as how Paul defends it. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is one of the things I bring up constantly in my sermons. Okay. I'm going to get proud here. I'm going to tell you how great Pine Grove is. How many places can you go and not only hear the truth rightly, but the tenor and way that Paul preaches also done in the pulpit and among the shepherds. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Let me do it this way. By God's grace, all this glory, I think you have elders here. Not I think. You have elders here who will tell you when you're wrong and who will spend hours and days with you to bring you back to repentance and faith in Christ. They will weep with you. They will keep you from the Lord's Supper. They will do that. And I think in the pulpit, we try to do that. We attempt to not just tell you the truth, but tell you the truth. To know you and apply it to you in your life and your conscience, right? Now, do you have people you love in this town or around the country who go to churches where they 
teach the gospel correctly, but they won't ever, you know, use the hammer. And do you warn them? Do you warn them that their souls are in danger? Because they're at a place where the shepherds don't care to use the rod because they're afraid that people will leave. Are you warning them? Because they, they got the content right, but they don't have the rhetoric, the fight. And Paul said, look, Paul has both. Look at again, verse 4. This is what I'm talking about. Will they use, they'll, they'll preach Paul's gospel, but they won't preach like Paul at all. They'll say the gospel Paul says, but they won't pastor like Paul pastors. This language in verse 4 is crazy. He says that those guys, they're false brothers. They say they love Jesus, but they don't. They're not in the kingdom. Do you see it? He not only will preach the gospel, he'll use language that's very strong to defend it. And both those things need to be present in the church or we're not faithful. Do you understand it? It's not right just to have the right doctrinal statement. You've got to have the right heart and fight. And in the American church, we got this in spades. We got almost none of this. You go to churches with shepherds who do not care about your soul because they won't fight. And so both are needed. Now, this can be applied to you in your workplace. This can be applied to you in your home. I'm not advocating here for some kind of like harsh, legalistic, beat people down kind of Christianity. You have heard grace this morning explained very clearly and sincerely. You have heard the love of God. So let me give you an analogy. I'm going to use sports again. How many of you, when I was a kid, I remember watching like the all-star, you know, the NFL football game or the all-star basketball game, and it was a real game. I mean, guys were really playing. They really hit each other. They really played defense. And now you watch, if you watch the NBA all-star game or the NFL, what is it? Is it called the all-star game, NFL? Pro Bowl, thank you. I knew that wasn't right. Have you watched it lately? It's rubbish. I mean, they're still playing the game. All the same rules still apply. But you can tell by their effort in the game that that game doesn't matter at all. You get what I'm saying? It's, it's really boring. They got the content of the game exactly the same, but their fight, their defense, their intensity is not at all telling you that that game matters a bit. It doesn't matter. We must not be like that in the church. We can't just play the game. Because if we won't play the game, 
in a way that shows that the game is meaningful. We're just showing that the game isn't meaningful. And so the grace of God and Paul's love for Christ is shown both in that he's very careful to teach true doctrine and he's zealous to defend the truth of the gospel for the sake of the souls of the saints. He's fighting for it. So will we. Will we fight for the truth of the gospel? Will we take on the discomfort of proclaiming the gospel to the gals we get together with or the men we go and shoot trap with? We have fight in us for this gospel. Or is our kingdom mainly just about our comfort? I mean, we've proven we'll fight, right? Over masks. We've got fight in us. Hmm? We'll fight when we think somebody has wronged our child. Right, Mama Bear? I'd say Papa Bear, but guys are usually a bit more conciliatory. I mean, we've got fight in us. But what's more important than the gospel? So first, we see the glory of God in his grace. It's all grace. Second, we see the glory of God in the fight that we should have for it. And third, I want you to see the glory of God in the fellowship that we get because of the gospel. If we were to reread this passage and take note of all of the relationships, the deep, intimate relationships that Paul has gained because of Christ, it it just about brought me to tears this week. First, everywhere he goes in the world and there's a church, he's got people who love him. That's something. I've been to Kenya and met Christians there and they've taken great care of me and my wife and my children. They didn't know me, but we had Christ. And so we were brothers and sisters. I've been to Indonesia. Same thing. What a gain, isn't that? A worldwide family, all with that one thing in common. And so we've got actual family all over the world. Second, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Barnabas, this guy. You know what Barnabas' real name is? Barnabas is a nickname. You know what his real name is? Ooh, did I stump you today? Joseph. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we meet him. Remember, he sold his field and gave all of the proceeds. And his name was Joseph, but the church nicknamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Now Paul's got him. And they travel together and minister together. And then Titus. Titus was such a trustworthy companion to Paul that when Paul was having all the trouble at the Corinthian church, he sent Titus. These men, these intimate relationships with these men, these blood brothers, these bonds of brotherhood, Forged in Christ and in the 
fight for the gospel. These are the guys that Paul, in his letters, wishes would come to him again. He relies on them. He's never alone. And then he goes to Jerusalem, and there's this huge dispute threatening to break the church in its infancy apart. And he meets these three pillars. James, the order there is important. James in verse 2-9. James, Cephas, and John. By that time, James had risen to the higher prominence in the church. And what do they extend to Paul? The right hand of fellowship. It's that phrase that really struck me. This warm acceptance. Now, the word fellowship, you know, is one of those words that is very meaningful but has lost its meaning today. It means that we have this bond because of this common commitment to this mission. And it's that bond that binds us together and that we will be loyal to. And that's what they have for each other. This loyalty, this commitment, this care. And I would say, in this day, as our culture gets darker, and as we look at all of the insanity going around, this bond, this fellowship that we have in Christ is only going to be all the more important. I see it all the time as a pastor. We get calls from relatives in another state. Hey, my Uncle Joe is dying. Would you go visit him? Why? Because Joe's all alone. He's got no church, no family who cares enough to drive up, so we'll send a pastor who doesn't know him and has never met him. You know what I see all uh, among Christians? Other Christians ministering to them, caring for them, meeting their needs, praying for them, visiting them, bringing them meals, upholding them. And that's what Paul has here. Isn't that a glory to God? Look what we gain. Look what we gain in Christ. In fact, the church is so rich in fellowships that there are many non-Christians who come to church just because they want to be around it. They'll even act like Christians and say that they're Christians and they're not, but because they just love this intimacy and fellowship. There there are those who are so jealous of it that they'll try to destroy it because it's so precious. And that's actually the point of chapter 2, verse 10. The only thing I haven't covered yet. Only they ask us to remember the four, the very thing we're eager to do. He's not talking here about the poor generally in the world. The church at this point had established in Jerusalem among the Jews and in the Roman provinces among the Gentiles. The Jews in Jerusalem were in a famine and were suffering incredibly. And what the pastors over those churches were telling the pastors over the Gentile churches is make sure that they help their brothers and sisters in the Jewish world. Because we have this fellowship. We have this responsibility for each other, this care. That's what that point is. So look at what you've gained in Christ. Look at what we have. All of this grace of God, 
the truth of the gospel that it's a privilege to give our lives for and then all of this fellowship. And so what do you do with that fellowship? Don't be petty. Don't let little things annoy you. Overlook, forgive, be tender-hearted, kind, forgiving one another as you've been forgiven in Christ. Treat this fellowship with the privilege and preciousness that it is because you know how easily this can be lost, right? Don't take this for granted. Let's pray. I praise you for your word. It is rich. It's a feast. Please help us to have hearts wide open to it and to each other. But also, God, give us faith that we would vigorously defend your truth. Help us to love you and your son in this gospel as such a preciousness of the greatest gift we have of coming to you that we would have fight for it and that we would care for others in it and do it all for your glory. So God, we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if I could have our elders and pastors who's serving come on down this morning. So as we said a few weeks ago, as Pastor Mark said a few weeks ago in the sermon on the Lord's Supper, that you've heard heard the word preached, and now you get to receive the word visibly, tangibly. That is what you've heard in the preaching of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus, you now get to be reminded No, I'm just tempted to say, hold in your hands, but then you'll think, I think that this is actually Jesus' blood. It's not actually Jesus' blood. And yet, aren't we reminded that his blood is shed for us? And so we are again, having communicated to us the profound care of God our Father that he wants to make sure that in every way that you can be communicated to, you are that Jesus loves you. With your ears, and now with your eyes, and now with your hands, and now with your taste buds. All right, you get that, okay? Kids, how many times have you said to your parents, why do you tell me so many times? <laughs> because they want to make sure that you hear. Dad, you already told me you love me. Dad, you don't have to give me a hug. Dad. This is what God the Father is doing for us. He wants to leave you without an ability to mistake that he has so set his love upon his church that he sent his son whose blood was shed. And yet, as I said in the time of confession, we have to do this carefully. We have to warn you that if you are not currently living in a way that honors the Lord, 
in a, in a way that's ongoing without repentance, that if you are living against your conscience, against God's word and ways that would scandalize the church and not making it known, then this is not for you. Of course, this is not for you if you're not a believer. But if you confess Christ and yet you aren't living repentantly, then this meal is not for you. And yet, I don't say that to exclude repentant people at all. Our sin, no matter how serious, is forgivable and we are welcome, but only to exclude those who are continuing in sin. So examine your consciences. Let this be a a time where God breaks through to you, makes you aware, and brings you to the cross. And and yet, if you are truly repentant of your sins, if you have sorrow in your hearts, as you resolve to pursue the holiness, if you're striving to live at peace with all and in love with all, if that's the testimony in your heart before God, then be assured that your sins are forgiven and you are most welcome. You hear that? You are most welcome. He bids you, actually, by name to come. And again, we are reminded that when we say that those living in unrepentant sin are not welcome, we are not saying that only those are welcome who have like perfect faith and really, really good lives. Because then none of us could come, except if we'd lie. We all fail to serve God as we want. We all know that we haven't been as loving. We know that there are words we should have said that we didn't, that we did say that we shouldn't have. We're sorry for it. We earnestly desire not to do it. We want to keep his commands. If that's us, then that's who's welcome here. Our remaining imperfections, our weakness of faith, does not prevent God from receiving you in mercy, for that is mercy. God is giving you what you don't deserve. And so only those who don't deserve it can come. He himself, through his son, makes us worthy. And so we don't come to this table as righteous in ourselves. We come seeking our life in Christ. We acknowledge that we live in the midst of death. We acknowledge that we aren't what we want to be. And so who will save us? Jesus Christ. And it's to him we come. And so, come, united with him. He is holy. He is righteous. And he is our acceptance with the Father. And so Jesus bids you to come. And so we're going to have you come down these aisles because Jesus bids you, because you can come to him. And so let's come. Uh, Come and take the cup and the bread, hold it, and go back to your seats, and then we'll take it all together after we pray and give thanks. So please come. Charge is this. In 2.10, we are asked to remember the poor. And so this is an application of the generosity of God to us in the gospel that we would be generous to others. And so remember those among you 
who are down, hurting, depressed, in need. Don't go away from them. Go towards them as God in Christ has gone towards you. Care for each other. Be generous, especially with those that you're most tempted to not want to be. That's the great beauty of the church. Unity in Christ among that which divides us. So those that you're most tempted to want to divide from, go towards. Get to know them. Hang out here afterwards. Invite them over. Uh, I think that's behind this, but especially those who are in most need. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great week in the Lord.